You are likely familiar with the idiom that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This is sort of a, a truism of the culture, and I think it has some biblical warrant that boys and girls, in other words, what that means is that it is better to spend a small effort to prevent a problem than to correct a major problem that might result later on. This is often applied maybe most directly to the realm of our health. For instance, it is better to eat uh, well and uh, exercise than deal with stroke, heart disease, and the sorrows that attend afterwards. Um, And in the realm of marriage, too, in spiritual matters as well, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Because I want you to think of that pound of cure, which sometimes does not come, often does not come when a marriage falls apart. When a marriage deteriorates, the ramifications are profound. It's like a nuclear blast, and the fallout goes everywhere. Both husband and wife, they suffer. The children suffer. Uh, Children are often forced to side with one family or another. Generations come uh, afterwards that suffer as well, and the fallout continues. Three, four generations sometimes it takes uh, before the Lord will reverse the difficulties that have come due to a divorce in a, in a home. Um, there are so many problems that attend to the destruction of a marriage. Families that were once bound together, right, who had come together in love on the wedding day, are now at enmity with one another. Even churches, when Christian marriages fall apart, are filled with sorrow and grief and despair because often one one side of the family will leave and there might even be church discipline if things like adultery were the occasion for it. The fallout, like I said, it's like a nuclear blast. And so it is best to prepare for a lifetime of marriage before you enter it, before the wedding day. Uh, Singles and youth, if the Lord is calling you to what he calls in the Bible the honorable estate of marriage, You must prayerfully prepare for it, even before a spouse is identified, potential spouse is identified. And given how needful, I'll just be plain with you, at least three or four ministers uh, have been in touch with me, and uh, between the preaching that we have on the marriage series, they are wondering if they needed to preach something similar, because the, the, the need for marriage counseling in the church is growing, it seems, exponentially. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Friends, and it's because we often don't come into marriage prepared. And couples don't know how to deal with the honorable state of marriage and how to deal with their spouse who is still a sinner. And it becomes difficult for them. And so we need to, singles and youth, if God is calling you to this estate, you must prayerfully prepare for it. And I cannot think of a more practical area spiritually where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now, One matter here, parents, this is actually, no matter how young your children are, this is a sermon for you especially as well. It's not just for the youth and the singles who are seeking marriage. You must be diligent to prepare your children. And often where this begins, and it begins at a very young age, you yourself must make sure that your marriage portrays exactly what it is that you intend to convey to your children. They're going to hear maybe a few hours or maybe hundreds of hours over their lifetime, right, of good instruction in the church and maybe even in your home. But what they are most going to be keenly aware of is your own behavior one to another. 
And you also have to prepare them by being diligent to prepare them even in their youth. For one day, Lord willing, uh, God willing, you will be married. And I want you to understand what it is to prepare and to be um, mature, even at a tender age. That they would be, and this is something I'll cover a little bit later, it's not just about them, right? Parents, their marriage is not going to be just about them. It's going to be about another child of God who's going to enter their life. And you have to have a care for that person who's coming into your family. And you have to care, uh, and I'll speak on this a bit more. I've told my own children that I, I will not give consent to marriage if I don't feel you are able to care for a, uh, a son or daughter of God. You won't get my blessing in that. And so, parents, you need to prepare them. You need to devote them to the Lord and train them to be devoted to their spouse. Prepare them spiritually and practically. Now, this cannot be a comprehensive sermon on preparation, but I think what would be helpful is to take some of the themes here and then apply them to the prior texts that we have considered and say, this is where we need to go. Singles, youth, uh, even those who are not youth and are singles and are looking for marriage, and parents as well. Consider these things with your child. All right, well then, with that lengthy intro, our theme is preparation for marriage. It's a simple one, but it has four heads today. First is serving in singleness, We must redeem singleness. Second is preparing spiritually. Third, securing consent. And fourth, planning practically. First, serving in singleness. Now, what I want to first put before you is that while marriage is the calling of most, it's not the calling of all. Some are given what is called the gift of singleness. And what we have to be aware of is in the church where most are married and most will be married, and even in churches like ours married fairly young, We need to be reminded of this fact, right? For many weeks now, we've been considering the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, right? In the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, and he has shown before us that glorious picture of marriage, and he pointed us to the wedding of our resplendent Savior to his bride, the church, and it was the Holy Ghost who uses him to proclaim the honor of the estate of marriage uh, as a picture of the gospel, But what do we remember of the apostle's biography? He was single, wasn't he? He himself was single, as he reminds us in this first epistle to the Corinthians. In verses 7 through 8, the apostle Paul reminds you he is never married. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and one after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. So even the great apostle who, who preaches the glories of marriage, was single, right? The Apostle Paul had what we call the gift of singleness, a true gift. Not all have it, mind you, because most will burn and they will desire for marriage. Verse 9, if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, if you ascertain that you are given this gift, you're able to contain by God's help and, and be content without marriage. What is it that the Bible directs you to do? Spend your extra time in folly and idleness? No. To the men, in verse 32, but I would have you, be, uh, have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Unless you think that he's saying this only to the men, for you women, in verse 34, comes the same. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Both sexes who are unmarried 
They must care for the things of God, especially how to please him, to serve him in a heightened way that the married cannot. That's why the Lord has given such a gift. That's why it's a gift, to serve him. Godly men, right, who are given this gift uh, are freed to do kingdom work. Were they freed, were they given this gift to binge television shows or play video games all day with their extra time? No, they were given the gift to be servants of the church and the body of Christ, either in official office or unofficially through other acts of service, considering the needs of Christ's church. Godly women as well are freed up this way too, to pour out the energy that would have gone to children and husband to serve Christ and serve his body. And I was just thinking about this, right? Even in the apostles' time, you know, he's speaking of a distress in that current time, right? But even in our time, our society and our families are very different in some senses. I mean, most of you, I think, are probably far away from extended family, right? And what a great blessing it is when the singles of the church are actually free to serve Families, you think of godly young ladies who are able to serve mothers, right? Because mothers don't have grandmother around. The godly young ladies are able to serve, right? Families are in that way, aren't they? They're able to take care of children because they don't have any of their own. And the godly men are able to go and help and serve widows and those in need because they don't have a wife of their own to tend to. You see, there's so many ways that the singles of the church can be servants of God. They can devote themselves to greater times of prayer and study of the word. They can encourage and exhort and tend to those who have needs. They can go and labor with the pastor and the elders in ways that are lawful for them. So many ways that the singles can redeem the time. In Matthew 19.12, Jesus gives the same direction as Paul to those with such a gift. There be eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. This is speaking of those who have that gift, not just single for a time, but are given a particular gift where they don't have that desire. They don't have that desire, right? They're made eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. And there are others, though, who don't have the gift that may be called to marriage, who may not marry for several years and many years. And it's not often for a lack of desire on their part or even preparation, but simply due to God's providence. You know, many times uh, there are many uh, ladies and, and men who have sought a spouse and for whatever reason the God, uh, God has not seen fit to bring one to them. But what are they to do with their time? The directive is the same. Redeem the time. Redeem the time and serve the Lord. At the forefront of your minds and singleness ought to be, what a blessing, I can better care for the things of the Lord. I can consider how I may please the Lord because I don't have to think about how I might have to please my husband or wife. And when your desire for marriage seems frustrated, single people, those of you who are seeking marriage and you seem frustrated by that, you need to remember, all of you, that you will all be wed one day. You will all be wed one day. And I don't mean on the earth, but in heaven, won't you? You are all betrothed. Every one of you, every believer is betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your baptism signifies it for you and the word of God testifies to it. All believers will be married to Jesus. And so in your singleness, beloved, in your singleness, you are waiting for the wedding day, aren't you? So why not please your husband now? 
Why not please Jesus Christ now? He's the one, after all, that you're truly wed to for all eternity. So what you do now is you take that desire for marriage and you, you go to the Lord with it. Now, if you've attended our Calvin's Institute study, you recall that Calvin did not marry until he was 30, right? And none of his children, even with uh, his wife, survived infancy. And he was married about nine years before the Lord took his beloved away. But in any case, whatever state he was in, he was the single-minded, steadfast servant of the Lord. Whether married, whether uh, a widower, um, whether single, he was a steadfast servant of God. Because he is ultimately, he recognized that he was ultimately married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so singles, I would say, be content and be encouraged that in this time, you have more time to spend with him. Now, if you do struggle with singleness and you struggle with loneliness, uh, remember that this is, as we heard in Psalm 111, this is God's providence to you. And what you have to remember about your bridegroom is he himself never had an earthly, earthly marriage, did he? Your heavenly husband is always sympathetic, right? He's preparing you for your own wedding to him. Now, I understand when it comes to service to the Lord and singleness, we are not to take this as far as the papists do, right? Where they have their celibate priests and nuns. They forbid marriage for the servants of the Lord, and they are what the Bible teaches us. Uh, they teach what is called the doctrines of demons, Right, First Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and so on. And I want you to understand what this does. This is why the papists have pedophile priests. It is this fact, and why homosexuality is rampant in their priesthood, in their clergy, because the man of sin teaches the doctrines of devils, teaching what is unnatural, and so unnatural acts result from it. But what does the Bible say? Marriage is honorable in who? All. All. Hebrews 13.4. But, maybe that was a bit of a digression, but I think it's important when you ask, well, then why don't our pastors stay celibate? This is why. Now, if you are in a state, in an estate of singleness, what I would encourage you in is this and exhort you, and the word of God is very plain. You must flee fornication. I have to put that here because it's getting easier and easier to fornicate all the time. You are to devote yourself to chastity. Chastity of soul and body. The soul, your mind and your heart, what goes in your eyes and what goes in your thought life must be chaste. Your body as well. The scripture says it's the Holy Ghost temple. And if you are engaged to be married, you are also not to be intimate with one another until you are wed, right? You are not wed yet. You must not be intimate in any way until you are wed. And so what I would just have you remember, church, we'll consider that a little bit later, is that singleness is in a state that many Christians will find themselves in, whether temporarily or for life. So you must remember as a church the singles of the church, and encourage them. And singles, be encouraged to press on for the Lord and serve the Lord. If you have the gift of singleness, serve in singleness for the entirety of your life. And if you don't have that gift, be content until the Lord might bring you a spouse. And God says, and this is always key for all of us, 
to prepare ourselves for Jesus as a bride prepared for her husband. And so look for the wedding day that really matters, beloved. All of you, all of you, all of our marriages, mine as well, will end in death. It is till death do we part. He makes us twain. He makes us one flesh. And what God has brought, let no man uh, tear asunder until death when God does it. And what a blessed day it will be on the day when we receive our eternal marriage to the Lord. So that's the day to really long for, ultimately. You know, our, our earthly marriage is a temporary stop in a way towards eternity. It gives us a foretaste maybe of the pleasures to come in eternity. And if we would do this, Single people would, would enjoy the Lord today and long for him. And even married people in marriage difficulties would be longing for their bridegroom. So having considered singleness, let's turn to our next heading, which is preparation spiritually for marriage. One um, matter before we speak of preparation, which is that for most in the church, marriage is the ordinary and honorable state for us. And what we are not to do is unduly delay it. We are not to unduly delay marriage. The the lack of preparation that we find for marriage is because it is no longer on every young man or woman's mind that they ought to pursue marriage at an early age. And so preparation is neglected. One of the dangers here will be fornication. The Bible is very clear on this. And the biblical remedy for fornication is total devotion to a spouse in the estate of marriage. Verse 2, this is where the, the apostle comes. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. You need to long for a husband or a wife, even in your youth, that you would love them, desire them, to render due benevolence to them and them only. This is not, as we have heard, the only reason for marriage, but it is a powerful reason nevertheless. And I will say, because of many reasons, one is rampant immaturity, which we'll cover with children later in the series. One delay, one reason for the delay in marriage is rampant fornication before marriage. In 2021, I want you to think on this. The median age for a man's first marriage is now almost 31 years of age. For women, it is now almost 29 years of age. In 1950, the median age was 20. A line chart, and actually, if you look at a line chart of this, there are several online, it's staggering. The acceleration each decade since 1950 is incredible, which means that it could be 40 soon. It's almost exponential. But I think what would be fascinating, and I didn't find, for many reasons, is a plot of a chart of the of the, a chart of the increase in fornication, cohabitation, and consumption of illicit sexual media. You will likely see them line up pretty well, is my guess. The lack of chastity before marriage is a reason why marriage is often delayed today. And so what we have to understand is an undue uh, delay of marriage is going to lead to great temptations for a man or a woman. And the thing about our society parents, you have to understand, is they have very easy access to ways to try to deal with that outside of marriage. And you need to deal with it very quickly with your children and prepare them for marriage, uh, God willing, at a younger age. 
not think on the way our society does, which is that they can wait till their 30s to get married. You know how much grief is going to come under, uh, under their souls for many of them. Now, I want to deal with this other issue here because in the 1990s, there was almost a backlash to this idea of rampant fornication, which was this idea of the purity culture, right? You might remember that. Um, the Bible teaches that we are to be chaste, yes. The problem with this kind of purity culture was that it taught either subtly or even overtly that those who have sinned in fornication or even been sinned against in that way uh, and taken advantage of were essentially damaged goods. Forgetting what the gospel teaches, you just go back one chapter, right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that even as it says that no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God, God, don't be deceived. The power of faith in Christ is this, and such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what we have to do is while we embrace sexual chastity, because that is good, our hope is never in our purity, right? Where is our hope? Is in Christ's purity, in Christ's chastity, in Christ's purity given to us, even as we are called to flee fornication. You know, moralism, which is very subtle because it often begins with very good things. You have to realize this, the devil delights in it. The devil really delights in it. Because he can turn what is a good thing very quickly into something that is totally against the gospel and put in the hearts and minds of those who have either sinned in the past or have been sinned against that there is no redemption for them and that they are totally without hope because your hope is never in our chastity though. Young people, boys and girls, hear what I'm saying. You ought to preserve it and you ought to tend to it. But your hope cannot be in it is all. Well, that said... You are not to unduly delay marriage if you are in the position to be married. You need to pursue it. But what does it mean to pursue it? It means to prepare for it. It means to spiritually prepare. Because for the Christian, as you have been hearing in prior sermons, marriage is a deeply spiritual state. It's a spiritual matter. It's to be in a state in which you exercise faith and obedience to the Lord. And so before the marriage comes, you must develop out your spiritual exercises and graces. And if you are married and you've never done this before, well, don't say, well, I guess I haven't prepared for marriage. I won't do it now. Do it now, husbands and wives. And all of us can use this encouragement. And so what it means for you, though, as you prepare, is it means that you prepare by first having a total devotion and consecration to the Lord Jesus. That is the place you begin. And you need to see that patterns of devotion to the Lord are patterns that must and will endure by God's grace after marriage. In other words, young people or singles, if you have no commitment to your heavenly husband now, what kind of commitment are you going to have to your earthly husband or wife? I would not consent as a minister of the gospel, I will not consent to marry one who doesn't show a basic commitment to Christ. Not in exercises of religion, in Christian love, public worship. Only those who are exercised in that way, prepared in that way, one who repents deeply, one who forgives, one who extends forgiveness, right? These are the basic matters of Christianity. 
you must be men and women of that sort before you marry, and you must prepare for marriage in that way, not just what kind of job will I have, not just do I know my domestical duties, but I must be first and foremost a Christian. And because marriage is in a state of love, charity, self-sacrifice, service, and commitment, you must prepare by becoming a man or woman with such graces. In Luke's gospel, very soon, in chapter 9, we are coming and hurtling towards a pivotal verse. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 Learn what that means as you prepare for marriage. Come after Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. How often? Daily. And follow him. That is the key to preparing for marriage, beloved is that the life that you live is not lived for yourself. It's not even first and foremost lived for your spouse, but it is lived for Jesus. You must decrease. Jesus must increase. If Christ is not the center of your life before marriage, your marriage is likely going to crater. Learn spiritual disciplines now, young people. Pray, read, praise, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do good works. Love others now before you are called to love your spouse. Sacrifice your own desires for the good of others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. This is how you prepare for marriage. You have to be one who is not thinking about yourself first and foremost. Never. You think about Christ and you think about those that are beloved of Christ. And then you will prepare for marriage. You must, you must prepare for this, beloved. Uh, If you are a, a, a young person and parents, maybe you can help in this way, right? You have a household now that you're a part of. If you're not preparing by serving your brothers, your sisters, your mom, and your dad, how will you ever think you are fit to love and uh, a spouse? You must prepare to love others. Think not on your own things now, today, before you're called to do that with husband and wife. And whether you have a household of your own, do it for others in the church, the people of God. Singleness and preparation for marriage is meant to be a time of service Because marriage is a lifetime of service itself. Learn that singleness is a time to prepare for that, to prepare to serve your spouse. If you seek marriage, show a servant's heart. Prepare spiritually in this way too. Put in your heart, condition your heart, the kind of spouse you must choose. I will not overly complicate it. Your first and non-negotiable criteria is to seek a godly man or woman. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 16. You must prepare your heart this way, right? It's not as simple as, well, we know one day and I'll look for a woman or a man Uh, right, who is a believer in the Lord. What is going to happen, as so often you remember our forefathers in the faith, a man or a woman's going to catch your eye. 
And until your heart is conditioned, I will only seek one I can be equally yoked to. You are going to be tempted, and don't think you can stand so easily and so readily. And your heart is going to be called away by strange women, even as Solomon's was. You must be aware that here is a man who cried out to God for wisdom, and he denied it when women pleased his eyes. So, you must remember the temptation of your flesh will be to compromise here. The great sin that even the godly face. What led to the flood in Noah's time? I think it's so interesting. Genesis 6.2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. They saw that they were fair, and their, their heart was knit to them, and they took them as wives. And the flood comes not too long after that. Now you must choose one that is not only pleasing to your eyes, but one who is first and foremost pleasing to Christ. Choose one who gives their first consideration to Christ, one who is converted themselves, right? But one who constantly, and this is a beautiful thing to prepare yourself, but also as you consider a potential spouse, you want one who is constantly saying and thinking, what does the Lord think of this or that matter? They're never thinking about what the world thinks. They're never thinking about what they themselves think. They themselves are, are constantly driven to the scripture. What saith the Lord? Let me find out. That is the person you must prepare to marry. You must choose one as well. And this is important. And don't forget it. You must choose one who deeply knows they are a sinner and are in need of the grace of the Lord. This is who you need. Otherwise, you will end up with a self-righteous person. And they are going to be very difficult because when expectations that they have placed are not met, they're going to have very little grace towards you. Not understanding that they themselves are in need of grace. You need one who will repent, one who will forgive, one who will extend forgiveness to you as well. One who follows the Lord. You need to determine, ask this question as you prepare for a spouse. Will this potential spouse forgive offenses? Will they be easily provoked? How well do they take a godly, kind, loving rebuke? And turn the question as you prepare it around, prepare it around as well. Am I one that forgives offenses? Am I easily provoked? Do I take a godly, kind, loving rebuke? Our confession is actually quite interesting here when it comes to a potential spouse. It says, you must only marry one within, and these are the words, the true reformed religion. Right? I think that's wise counsel. Now, I do know that uh, given the time it was written, the confession has in mind the Reformed in distinction with Anabaptists and Papists. And we don't deny that there are true Christians in every branch of the visible church. But let me say that the greater the gulf between a potential spouse, young men and women, uh, and Reformed doctrine, the greater the potential grief in marriage. You know, these things can be resolved in mar- uh, before marriage if a potential spouse is open to reforming. But seek to see if a potential spouse uh, will resolve their difficulties before the marriage, not after the marriage. You want to be clear and on the same page. Because if they won't be reformed, um, you know, I don't mean uh, that they have to have every jot and tittle of the confession down, mind you. But what I mean is if they won't reform and come in the direction of reformed doctrine, soteriology, um, even the, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the sacraments, if they don't do it before marriage, they won't do it probably afterward. 
Many Presbyterians have married Baptists and have become aggrieved. Again, I'm not saying that a Baptist isn't a true believer. But what I'm saying is for the sake of your life together, many will become aggrieved when conflicts arise even over infant baptism, right? You know, it's very easy to cover these things over before the marriage. You know, everybody's excited. I want to get married. But then the baby comes. And then now suddenly one party or the other is, is remembering the doctrine of their youth and is thinking, I want this child to receive the covenant sign that signifies the promises of God to be a God to me and my children. And the other spouse says, absolutely not, no way. And now there is great tension there. And you see great distress. I often thought one of the most instrumental books in my coming to the Presbyterian position was James MacDonald Cheney's book, classic, William the Baptist. Wonderful book. I commend it to you. And it is this very, very, very scenario where a Baptist man marries a Presbyterian woman and he's challenged on his doctrine of baptism. But it comes because of the difficulties in the marriage. That aside, if I could say one thing, though, uh, with that piece of wisdom, is what you need to do when you choose a spouse is choose one that adores Christ more than they will adore you. That is essential. Choose one who will love Jesus more than they will love you, and you will find they will love you well. The best spouse loves Christ more than any other. Marry someone as well that you know will continue with Christ even when you die. And when you die, will cling to Christ more thoroughly than when you were alive. So this is what you don't want. You don't want somebody who will quickly sign the dotted line, so to speak, just to convert and become a Christian or whatever, just because uh, you want to get married to them. You want somebody who has a deep, abiding love for Christ. And that can come very quickly in many cases. I don't uh, discount that. But some people just convert just to get the marriage done and over with. And you don't want that at all. Young men, wouldn't it be your blessing to choose a woman who will say to you, as Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if aught but death part thee and me. There's no time really to desire. It's no time to determine whether young lady men will follow you uh, after the marriage. You determine that before the marriage. Ascertain, you know, does this woman have a sweet and submissive spirit? Will she respect me? If she's contentious towards me, uh, others, right? Here's the thing. If your potential spouse, man or woman, I'm using the men as an example here towards the women, but if a man or woman is contentious to others now, don't be surprised if that gets turned on you later. Because again, feelings will fade and life with another sinner will set in. If she doesn't honor her parents, especially her father, right? And she doesn't honor her elders, why in the world would she honor you? And young women, choose a man you can submit to. The time to determine whether a man is one you can submit to is before the marriage. Afterwards, you must submit to him in any matter that's not sin. You need to determine if the man is a fool like Nabal before, not after you say, I do. You need to ask, right? And don't compromise on this. Will this man lead me well? Will this man desire to provide for me and the children? Not thinking as the world's ladies do, 
Uh, will this man provide me a mansion and a BMW? But will this man put food on the table? And will he work so hard? Even he will work the skin off his bones if he has to do it. Does he honor his parents? How does he treat his mother? Because let me say, that's probably how he's going to treat you. Parents, the greatest need for your children in marriage, all that said, is their personal holiness. And that's where you need to pour your energy into, that by God's grace, you must see them excel in godliness. We often pray for our children to have a godly spouse, a good, godly prayer. I hope you pray it in family worship. But I've also told my children, I will not give my consent to a marriage if they are not godly themselves. I have a duty to protect another family son or daughter, another child of God from a wicked child of my own. If they are going to be like Eli's sons, better I don't give any consent at all. I have that responsibility before Christ and you do too as much as I would love to have grandchildren and see my child married. All that said, even as you consider a potential spouse, I don't want to discount this fact either because some can avoid it. There ought to be a a mutual attraction between two potential spouses. This is rather important. It's not of the essence of marriage, but it is still rather vital. This is what distinguishes the love that we have for a spouse on some levels from the love that we have of a brother or sister in the church. Right? There is this kind of mutual attraction to one and the other. And the, the love, I was thinking about the love that Jacob had right, for Rachel. He saw her as beautiful to him. And that attraction to her is what caused him to serve Laban for seven, well, actually 14 right, years, And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. Genesis 29, 20. Now, obviously, we can love other brothers. Uh, If uh, if you're a sister, you can love brothers in the church, and you will, uh, if you're a brother, will love sisters in the church. But there is something different here with this kind of attraction to a potential spouse, isn't there? That uh, there is this uh, uh, sense that you would want to spend the rest of your life with this particular person and this only But even in that, boys and girls, remember that their outer man will perish one day and will age. The true beauty, uh, well, what the Proverbs 31 say, you know, beauty is fleeting, right? Beauty is fleeting. It doesn't last forever. Handsomeness is fleeting as well on the other side, as my wife can probably attest to my outer form. But even as the outer man perishes, what is wonderful, and this is why marriage is spiritual, a Christian's inner man is being renewed, isn't it? And, and I think there's a bit of a shift as we grow older with our spouse, right? As Christ is formed more and more in them as they are sanctified, right? We find what is most intoxicating about our spouse is the savor of Christ in them. And I thought on this, why is that? Why is that that as we grow older and we love to see Christ more and more in our spouse? Well, isn't it actually the Lord preparing you for himself? He's preparing you for himself, because one day, right, even as Christ is formed in your spouse, you are marry, going to marry Christ. And as that is what attracts you more and more to your spouse, you are prepared for the wedding day. And you are prepared for Christ himself. And so what you have to see ultimately is that Christ's beauty is your longing as you see your spouse become more like him. And this is why you must also be married to a believer. You won't have Christ pictured for you in your marriage otherwise. Well, seeing 
There may be interest in a potential spouse. Let's consider our next heading, which is securing consent, which is something not often spoken of anymore. You know, there is a kind of pride that arises with youth, especially in our society. In the 1960s, you might be, uh, you might be aware, there was even an expression that became rather popular, right? Uh, don't trust anybody over 30. Many of those people are over 30, obviously, and they obviously have probably renounced that because they see themselves as the exception, undoubtedly. But all that said, we live in an obnoxious youth-oriented society. I was thinking about Silicon Valley, which I have some background in. Everything must be reinvented, right? It's, it's not enough to have a um, oven. It must be a smart oven because an oven isn't good enough. You must have all these gadgets and gizmos. And, and what's the keynote speech? We have totally reinvented this or that. And it's the same old thing with a Wi-Fi connection. And that's essentially what we, we think. We can reinvent everything, right? And so everything before must be rejected. That's sort of the axiom of our society. Everything that has come before us must be rejected. I remember a former governor of California who became president later on, and he was dealing with the hippies. And he, he went to Berkeley, and the, one of them said, well, well, we, you, your generation didn't have computers and this and that and the other. And the governor of California said very wisely, you're right, we invented them, right? This is the problem with youth, is that they don't actually value those who came before and paved the path for them. And that's not just a societal issue. That's not even just an East versus West thing, though it is perhaps more rampant in the West today. You remember this is even a problem in the Bible. You remember Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. He should have remembered the proverb of his father that he delivered to him, that the hoary, that is the gray head, is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness, Proverbs 16.31. He rejected that, though. What do we read in 1 Kings 12.8? But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with who? The young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. Do you remember what happened when he took the counsel of the young men? That was the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom. And the kingdom was torn asunder and was never put back together. Right? The root of it was his pride in not seeking the counsel of the elders, but he sought the counsel of the youth. All of you who seek marriage must have those with more experience and wisdom to lean on. Job 12.12, with the ancient is wisdom and in length of days understanding. I'll just encourage you, older saints, you are valuable to us all. And you uh, are helpful in giving us wisdom. My prayer is that we would seek it from you as well as you would give it to us. That said, young people, marriage is prepared in knowing In a multitude of counselors, there is safety, especially those who are your elders. And let me say this, don't be so proud because you're often going to be thinking with your hormones and not your head. And your hormones are no guide to determining whether a spouse is a good fit or not. And if pursuing another as a potential spouse, make sure you are doing it with godly oversight. It doesn't matter if you want to call the thing courting or dating or whatever label you want to slap on it. It must be done with godly oversight and counsel. If you have parents, make your parents aware. Uh, If you have elders, make your church's elders aware that they may give you counsel and tend to you as well. And here's the thing when it comes to parents. 
those who are interested in another, men, this is especially speaking to you, you are to seek and secure consent from the parent. The need for parental consent arises in verses 36 through 38. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely towards his virgin, his virgin daughter, if she pass the flower of her age, so she is of the age to marry, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, his unmarried daughter, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. So there's this idea in the Bible that fathers ordinarily give consent to have their daughters married. It requires parental consent. And young men, there is more and more this folly that you find a spouse, you two agree to get married, and then you simply inform uh, the potential wife's uh, father that you're going to be wed. This happens all the time. They come home. Guess what we did? We got engaged. Right? That, and I've even thought on today, sometimes men don't even extend the courtesy of informing right, their potential father-in-law. And the wife-to-be all by herself tells her parents, guess what? I'm going to marry this person, Joe, over here. We're going to get married. That's obnoxious and unbiblical. That said, there is, there is a counterbalance there that parents who would object to a marriage on unscriptural grounds are to be ignored, right? You're to obey God and not man. For instance, if your parents say, right, and maybe, uh, not that my parents did this, mind you, but I come out of a pagan household, and if they did say, I will not consent to you marrying a Christian person, I would have to say, I will obey God and not man. I will seek the counsel of my elders and I will talk to them about it. Is this a lawful marriage? And they will say, uh, if, if the, it's a good fit spiritually, yes, it is. And I will obey God and not man. And I will also say this. Sometimes parents, and we must mortify this, we can be rather selfish, right? Or we can set our criteria far beyond God's criteria in the Bible. You hear this all the time, right? Oh, my mom or my dad, they think no one's good enough for their son or daughter to marry, Right? You need to speak maybe and get counsel from your elders if you think that you suspect your parents might be doing this and maybe your elders can speak to your parents and maybe uh, converse with them. Sometimes your parents might be right. Sometimes your parents might be wrong if they are godly even. Also, parents, I would say, you should consider being proactive about seeking a spouse for your child. What did Abraham do? He sent his servant who found Rebekah for Isaac. So parents, I would say, seek ministers and elders who might be able to reach out to others who can help be servants to you in finding a spouse for your children. This has often been um, a tradition in the Reformed churches where oftentimes a person might say, well, I'm having a hard time finding a Christian spouse who uh, has the convictions I do, especially about matters of worship or whatnot. Well, maybe um, the ministers and the elders can help seek out potential spouses throughout, whether it's in the denomination or those like-minded, and there are many matches made that way. But ultimately, right, what I also want to leave with you as another balance is that the potential spouses must consent to be married to one another. There is consent required on the parts of the parties in the marriage. There are no shotgun weddings in God's eyes. That's not lawful. Without consent, right, a parent or an elder might try to secure a match, but it requires consent on the parties to marry. 
The Bible has been very clear on this. Genesis 24, 58. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Right? Seeking consent on the part of the lady. And obviously, this is a lesser to greater argument. If it, it requires consent for her to give it, it obviously requires for the man as well. Well, with that then, let's uh, conclude with our final head, planning practically. Now, in practical matters, all youth, whether called to marriage or not, are called to grow in maturity. We heard this in Titus 2 and 1 Corinthians 13. You are to become sober and grave and put away childish things. This is spiritual, but also eminently practical as well. You are to work hard in your singleness in we talked about this, right? Right in the, in the Jewish mind, you have 12 and 13-year-olds are considered essentially adults, children of the covenant. And so we must, from a very young time, work to become grave, sober, mature men and women. You need to work hard in your singleness to do this, beloved. Young men, you must especially go to war on this point. You heard it in our sermon on providing for a family. You need to become serious today. Parents, this is also on your shoulders. You need to model maturity and be good role models for your children. You need to work hard yourself. You need to be mature. You need to be sober. You need to be grave. Many parents are virtually indistinguishable from children themselves. Many mothers, I see this all over social media, many mothers are giddy because some think they and their daughters are sisters. Not because the mother is particularly youthful looking, but because she acts and dresses exactly like a youth. That cannot be and must not be you. Would it be, though, the case that that would be said because your daughter is so mature that they mistake her for one who is mature? That's the goal. That when your son or daughter walks into a room with you, they would say, who is this young man? Who is this young lady? So polite and serious. That's the goal. Parents, again, this begins by modeling a godly, mature marriage to your children. If you, mom and dad, are at each other's throats all the time, never showing love and grace, what do your children learn? We can teach one thing, as I said earlier, with our Bible open for a couple hours on the Lord's Day now and maybe 10 to 30 minutes every uh, day in family worship. But they are going to get like 16 hours a day with you to understand what doctrine you really believe. Parents, if your life does not reflect the word, what are they really learning about marriage? So many generations are patterned on our behavior. Think of it yourself. Why do you do the things you do, whether for good or ill? It is often you learn them from your parents. There are many things I commend my parents for, even as unbelievers, that by God's grace I have imbibed. But there are also many things I had to unlearn and still am unlearning. Evil patterns that I have to get rid of. So many generations, right, they think, because they're not steeped in the word of God anyway. My mom did this to my dad, and so this must be acceptable. Or they say, my dad did this to my mom. This is how he spoke to her. And so this is how men treat women. Parents, we cannot be the occasion for stumbling. I am often convicted that my sins might affect generations to come from me. 
and godly youth. Just hear this too. If you do have parents that have made you stumble, God is not going to excuse your sin because your parents had done evil. You answer to God for yourself. Resolve to put away your parents' sins. And by God's grace, if you do, he will give you your heart's desire if that is your desire. Well, I will say with time being what it is, and we are out of time. I would say prepare for marriage by reviewing what we have already learned in the prior tense, uh, nine sermons on marriage and push yourself in developing in those areas. Men learning to provide spiritually and materially, women tending to the home and learning of this. Young girls, if you are convicted of that, learn from your mother. Ask young boys. Ask if you are feeling rudderless and shiftless. Ask your father, how can I prepare? What it would be if your parents didn't have to come to you and say, you need to prepare, but you would go today and tell them, I want to prepare. That would be a glorious thing. There are a lot of practical matters in this, securing vocations, men knowing how to lead family worship, how to care for a woman, ladies learning how to tend to children, how to cook and manage a home. And I would say the other part of this I want to put before you is once a potential spouse is found by God's help and you seek to be betrothed, you need to enter into a time of premarital counseling. That's not law, though it is in this church an expectation that you would do it because our church is committed to that and we expect our members to go through it before marriage. We want the couples, right? It's the same idea. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Let's go and set expectations for the marriage. Let's understand God's expectations from the Bible in spiritual, emotional, physical, and even financial areas, which, as you know, is one of the greatest uh, areas and concerns for schism in a marriage. Or even, am I thinking as a couple, right, biblically about children? So many gloss over that until the time comes to have them. Do you understand the roles of husband and wife? Are you committed? Are we committed to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even if it would come with worldly loss? Am I prepared as a family to give up all things for Christ? Is there transparency, and this is important, over our besetting sins? Full disclosure is important in these matters, beloved. What are my besetting sins? What have I gone through? What has the Lord taken me through? We have to deal with those things as a couple before they enter the marriage. Even things as simple and as silly as they may sound, like expectations for the wedding, ought to be handled with counsel before the couple goes forward. You know, you think about things like this. Biblically, a wedding ought to be modest and not ostentatious, right? Think on these things. Well, I cannot be exhaustive tonight, as I think you are understanding from the scope of the, content, of, of the topic, but I want you to be impressed with the idea that marriage has many areas that you must prepare for. If you are a youth, even in your youth, and if you are a youth, do not unduly delay marriage by putting it off and thinking, I can get to it when I get to it, but first let me deal with other things before I come and get married. After all, most of my friends get married when they're 30 or, or even later in life, right? If you find yourself in that position by God's providence and not by choice, that's one thing. But if you have made the choice to put off marriage, you are likely going to find great grief. Consider these matters today and not tomorrow. If the Lord moves you by his help, he will preserve you from several evils that come with those who willfully push marriage off. But for all of us, 
Let us end with this thought. Whether married or not, remember you are still preparing for marriage today. You are preparing. I am preparing for marriage today. You are preparing for the heavenly marriage that will take place in the revelation, in the resurrection. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has done what? Made herself ready. She has prepared herself. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Oh, make yourself ready by longing for this day. Make yourself ready for Jesus in the time that you have remaining. Clothed with clean and white linen, with the righteousness of Christ, not our purity, but Christ's purity. That blessed day is coming, and what a blessed day it is. And may the Lord use this sub-series on marriage to long for the day which comes. Even as we pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer, if able. O Lord, our God, as we come to the conclusion of this portion of our family series on marriage, we pray that you would be pleased to bless every marriage here and every marriage that will be. We pray for even the youngest child, even the youngest child who even now is crying aloud. We pray that you would prepare that child and all our young infants even who have come to praise God this day, that all of them, O Lord, would be prepared for uh, marriage if they're called to it, but be prepared for the heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. We pray for our youth here, from the youngest, uh, maybe even those in the womb. Lord, would you prepare them for marriage? We pray for those singles who are seeking the will of God in marriage. Would you cause them, O God, to seek for marriage and not unduly put it away, but instead earnestly seek it. And for those who are single father, especially if they have the gift of singleness or by no fault of their own have uh, found themselves in a position with no spouse at this time, would you encourage them that their marriage is even unto the Lord? O Lord our God, we thank thee and praise thee for the good word of God, which says that we are headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb by faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.